0: Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. I am on the road. I recorded this just a little while ago on the Oregon coast here, so you might hear a little bit of waves and stuff in the background and some kids downstairs. But I just had a great talk with Armin Harish. Uh, He is one of the founders of Skywalk and uh, very involved with Fly Surfer, which I didn't know that those two brands are under the same flag uh so he's been involved in kite surfing and paragliding for an awful long time in fact learned how to fly in 1989 and was the first person to fly 300k in the flatlands germany and uh it's been at it a long time been totally injury free uh, is kind of a sky god when it uh when it comes to flying flatland. So a good portion of the show is dedicated to flatland flying techniques and strategies and what you can do. And he's also done a lot of videos up on, just been checking some of those out. So if you go to the show notes for this one, you'll find um, his links to a lot of the videos and instruction he does. You can actually hire him to teach. And so a lot of good information there from the flatland perspective. Also some thoughts on Uh, the stupidity of being frustrated after a flight goes bad and uh, some thoughts on safety and we get into lightweight stuff. And so, yeah, a lot of interesting things here. I think you're going to enjoy this. So without further delay, let's just get into it. And please enjoy this conversation with Armin Harsh. Armin, so great to have you on the show. Uh, we've had many people ask for you. I've been told a, a lot of uh, things that are going to make you blush. Uh, Flatland Sky God was was one I got several times. So, um, it really excited to talk to you about Skywalk. About you know, before we even opened the show, there we were talking. I didn't know that the the connection between Skywalk and and Fly Surfer. And you know, uh, yep. as we discuss, I've got a long history in in kite surfing as well that we don't often talk about on the show. So I'm sure there's some crossover there that'll be really interesting. So that'll be, that'll be fun. And then, uh, really want to drill down with you about flatland techniques and strategies. And, and, uh, you, you mentioned before we started that you, you started flying in 1989, which has taken us way back to the very origins and, uh, kind of discovered that flatland flying was, was possible. So we've got a lot of things to cover and, uh, but thank you for coming on the show and, and thank you for sharing your time. It's a pleasure.
1: I hope someone is interested in that. I've got some uh, values I can share with you.
0: Great, great. Well, hey, this usually I would start by asking you your history and uh, and taking us up through that, which I'm going to do. But I thought we'd we'd start this one off a little bit differently than than we typically do because you you mentioned that you started flying in 1989. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Can you can you recount your most amazing flying experience now this doesn't have to be your best flight this could just be, you know this could be the most terrifying whatever which what what pops <laughs> to my, what pops into your mind when i when i ask you that question yeah
1: luckily i have not really too bad experience so far no accident um so i'm really proud and happy about it and want to go on like this um one of my nice flight was uh, in a wave at the ocean where you could climb over the clouds uh, and this was a really, really nice flight. I just had a group with me for a paragliding course, and the locals was already gone, and then we could go out and go around the cloud, go over the clouds, and was in the blue sky. I also have a short video at my YouTube channel. I can link it to you, and the people can see this. this was one of my greatest flights. But the other one was my um, the first flight that ever happened in um, Germany, the 300 kilometers flight. It was also really exciting for me.
0: And so, when when yeah. was that the three hundred k flight? That was so that make sure I understand that was the first time you flew three hundred k. No, it was the first time that it was flown in Germany.
1: Oh, okay, that someone was taking off from Germany who was flying three hundred kilometers. I was doing it with our tequila in B wing, and even the other guys could not do it with the competition wing. So it was uh, yeah quite some. Uh, um, interest about this flight and it was really exciting for me it, the forecast doesn't look too good it was just the average day but it worked out to be able to fly 300 kilometers here in germany so it was really a nice experience when you know you you fly further than everybody before and you still have uh, time for uh, thermic and you still can go on that was really exciting
0: when, when was this
1: <laughs> I think it was four years ago. I have to check the flight. <laughs> I just usually I just remember only the experience, but I don't
0: ex- uh, know always the dates and everything. I I live for experiences. <laughs> I I think it was I think it was I was going through. Uh, you know we 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 don't use the the DHV system. We we mostly use X contest. Uh, and I was I was surprised. You know when. Some of your friends asked me to get you on the show. Uh, they they gave me the links to the the DHV site DHV. that that most Germans use for for flying. So I was searching through that this morning and I came up with your flight. I think it was four years ago. That was yeah, that was impressive. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, any kind of flight like that is always one for the memory banks. Yeah, but if you fly where you grow up and
1: do a great flight, it's also something very excited. What was also very excited was when I was. Um, we made a trip to Namibia, a XT trip hmm. with some other Skywalk pilots, and it didn't happen that people was doing cross country Namibia for plenty of years. So it was a lot of research, but it was so great the first flight we did when you climb over five thousand meters over the flatlands and have four thousand meters over ground, and have this great clouds there and just this uh, sand down,
0: almost no roads. This was really, really exciting. Did you did you tow? So I have spent some time in Namibia. Did you tow up there, or how did you how did you get up?
1: Yeah, we had our own winch that was mm. taking with us a Shoeback winch at this time, and we was uh, five pilots. And there's also a nice video done from the trip. I can send you the link, and uh, that that was really um, a great experience. I always dreamed about. When you're on holiday, like in Africa or somewhere, and you just see these great clouds, and sometimes you see the, the dust devils going up, but you still think maybe it's possible to fly there. And I mean, the planes do a lot of records there in Namibia. It's the main target. And you can, you're can, you allowed to climb up to a bit more than 6,000 meters. Wow. And yeah, that was really, um, the goal was made a German record in, in height gain. But it was it also possible to, to make a world record of height gain, but we was not doing the last year because I had or we had no time. but it's it's um, a very interesting, exciting spot to do uh, records.
0: Yeah, that was you know uh, that never even occurred to me when I was there. We went out to the Sousa Play and we did a little bit of paramotoring and we did you know the every afternoon when the sea breeze would come in strong it was the angle was always really wrong, but we could was, do uh, you know some. Surrounding- Almost to Sussosflay, that was also great. Wow, it's so beautiful. What an amazing place. Um,
1: We didn't expect there's really thermal, but the forecast was telling that there's also thermal. So we were towing us up and it was flying to the ocean to Sussosflay until the west wind uh, from the ocean was coming. Then we had to land. But um, yeah, that was also very exciting.
0: It's such a, uh, one of the, uh, one of my favorite countries to, to travel in, you know, you get those Toyota Hilux trucks with all the camping gear on the back and, you know, all the roads are dirt and there's just, you know, it's like being yeah. in a, in a safari the whole time, but that's wild. You know, it's just, there's no yeah. fences. There's no, there's no ownership. There's just, you know, but, oh, there's elephants and oh, there's, you know, there's baboons. Yeah, it's just awesome.
1: Yeah. It's not undangerous for sure. Yeah. So, so I think. Uh, renos for example are there when we was towing there was a big fence and after two days we asked why is there such a big fence yeah because there are uh, Rhinoceros and other animals (laughs) so you should not land at the other side (laughs) okay but with cross country going over this land so yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I would imagine that was that'd be that could could be definitely kind of terrifying when you're up five thousand meters. You're just loving it, but when you're about to land and it might be elephants or something, I mean, there's it's it's a wild place. But if you land at the wrong position, it can
1: be that you're thirty kilometers away from every normal road, of course. And then you're a bit of problem. There are some farms, but you don't know if there's someone or if there's no one, and. Um, uh, if it's so hot there, you can't walk too far. You, we always had three to four liters of water with us. In case of emergency, you have to land somewhere that you don't uh, die because you have nothing to drink. <laughs> uh, but it, anyway, it worked good out. We never had a real problem. Everybody was landing maximum one or two kilometers from the road away. And we had no problems at all. Everything was um, in research. We did already that there how to get a helicopter in, eight, in case of emergency. But we had no problems. We only had one guy who had a big collapse, but it was in front of a thunderstorm. At this day I was not flying because I I like to fly when it's safe and I had not a single collapse and just was one guy who had a big collapse. But the rest was also fine.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned. Uh, I want to rewind. You mentioned. You know, in your whole career, you've you've never had an accident. Um, what do you What do you chalk that up to? Is that's uh, that's unfortunately a very frequent uh, topic on the show, <laughs> um, or people that have accidents and fear injuries and coming back, not just from the physical side, but the mental side. But you know, you've been flying since since eighty nine. That that's exceptional.
1: I think I have enough fear that I don't. Uh, I don't feel excited if it gets dangerous. Mm. Some people like it. I'm also not a competition pilot. I don't like to always fly full speed when you're always close, close to the collapse. So I dislike it. Mm. Uh, sometimes I fly a bit of competition, but it don't give me any uh, excitement. So I'm, I prefer to go at nice conditions with nice clouds, and then I go cross-country and love it. But if it looks too shitty, I, I do something else.
0: <laughs> okay. So fear is a good thing, isn't it? It's <laughs> yeah, it helps you to survive. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you've got to mind that. Um, okay. Well, before we, I, I'm still just, I kind of want to ask you a lot more questions about Namibia, but that's, that's probably not where we need to focus the show. That's just I've a, sp- a
1: nice video. If you watch for it, if you see a lot and you still have some questions. Let me know.
0: Yes. Yeah, so you'll send me these links after, and, and we'll, we'll include all those in the show notes. So everybody can, can watch those. That just, sounds fantastic yeah. as does the wave flight uh, off the off the coast yeah, That would yeah. be amazing um tell me about your your history with with uh, fly surfer and and skywalk and how that all came together i understand you're one of the one of the founders one of the owners of the company
1: yeah um yeah i um when i was uh, 17 i was uh, a professional canoeing guy and was German champion canoeing and I was doing then a different competition where someone was paragliding. And then I started paragliding with him and teach him with some canoeing. And when I started um, with the paragliding, I do it more and more professional. And I was doing the first record was 1995 with 166 kilometers in the flatlands before the first flight was 71 kilometers. Hmm. And it was... Um, close to the record that was done two weeks before by Torsten Hane uh, from the Alps. And then everybody was listening about the flatlands because no one uh, could imagine that it's possible to make such big flights in the flatlands. But um, yeah, whatever I do, if I trust in something that it's possible and if people tell me that it's impossible, then they just motivate me to, to show that it's possible.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, what was that, yeah, that? Before you go on, we're. we're You know, because I I wasn't a pilot then that, you know, when, when people say that you, you know, that it wasn't possible in the flatlands, like weren't, weren't the hang gliders, um, Mm -hmm. you know, doing pretty big flatlands flights in Texas and stuff at that time. Was it just, was it specific to the German flatlands that, that, you know, that, that hadn't been, you know, that people just weren't, weren't doing it or was it just period flatlands? Mm, It was not too much from the hang gliders, but one hang glider was
1: also flying like 170 kilometers I think Lucas Eds he was flying close to uh, Paris or something. Mm. And it was one of my dream. And at this 166 kilometer flight, I was also reaching then frost and flying into frost. Mm. And it was really exciting to be able yeah, to fly the whole day. If you just take off from these small hills or our winch, we, I was doing winch towing at this day, but you had only 100, 150 meters where you was disconnecting because the space was so narrow. And it was, yeah, it was really difficult already when you
0: get the sermon. It was exciting. <laughs> and yeah, it was really a, a funny experience. And what about, um, I'm taking you off on a little side note here. Is, is airspace quite difficult on these on these flatlands flights that you have in, in Germany? Because yep. isn't there just tons of airspace?
1: Yeah, that's right. At this time, it was a bit more opened um, because it was close to Frankfurt Airport where I was taking off and now you, you can't flow so, fly so high anymore mm. at this uh, area, and it's still a lot of um, navigation in the air to get around all these airspace. It's one of the reasons why not too much people are ab- able to make uh, cross-country flights. When I was doing my 300-kilometer flight, I was uh, passing an airspace, which is forbidden to pass, but there was a no NOTAM that it's allowed at this day to pass it, mm. so after I was landing, at the DHV, there was a lot of people calling. Oh, this guy was getting through the airspace. <laughs> you, <laughs> to call him, and he was calling me. And that uh, usually you're well prepared. Was it really illegal? And I said no. There was a no term. It's allowed. <laughs> they should check it.
0: I have to say that's, you know, in the, in the X-Alps, that's my Achilles heel is, is, uh, cause we just, we don't have airspace where I, at all, we don't have any <laughs> where I fly at home. We, you know, we can't, we can't go above 18,000 feet and that's it. Uh, and so there's, you it's, it, it, I always have to really study that before the race because we just, I just don't deal with it very yeah. much. So it must be something that's just second nature for you.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you have a goal, whatever you do, then you have to look how to reach the goal, and if it's necessary to to hunt to navigate, then you just do it. Because if your dream is to fly 300 kilometers, then yeah, it's difficult. A lot yeah. of airspaces you need to get around, and at this flight I also had my radio with me. I was at one airspace. I had to get contact by air radio to get a permission to pass it. For example,
0: but yeah, you just do it. <laughs> Okay, well, the, the, I, I took you off on a on a tangent there to get take me back again to I want I want to hear more about Skywalk and Fly Surfer and just the yeah. the genesis of the company and and how that all yeah. kind of came together.
1: Yeah, at, um, at year two thousand, I had a paragliding shop at this time, and a friend of mine who was starting to build kites, and I said, "Okay, I will help you," because I had the paragliding shop, I was not flying too much anymore. I was excited about trying out something. New. And we developed the kites and then we founded Fly Surfer. And some friends from paragliding, from me, they also founded the Paramarina, a brand for a Spinnaker sail with a wing inside. And we met at the boat show in Dusseldorf and then we decided to make a company together. And we have one development, we have just one office and everything together. And then we founded Skywalk. And this was in 2000. Yeah, and then everything started there. Also, we decided to make paragliders because we all was coming from the paragliding business. Our heart is for paragliding
0: and yeah, and everything started. So, and, and this is something that quite fascinates me because I, I worked very closely with with Best Kiteboarding when they were the sponsor of of the the first you know yeah. big kind of around the world expedition we did called the Best Odyssey, and then I've worked with Cabrina uh, in two thousand twelve until now as the Cabrina Quest, which was our second time uh, kind of around the world. That one stayed more in the in the South Pacific, but um, it you know the uh, kite surfing is similar in some respects to to paragliding when it comes to the manufacturing end. of Things and also just the people doing it. You know, you've kind of got a limited. <laughs> the, the, yeah. These are two sports that don't really grow that much. I mean, kite surfing really had its heyday back in the early two thousands, mid two thousands, and it, as I understand it, and you would know more that the the total number. It's kind of like paragliding; the attrition is taking care of the people that are coming into it. It's it's kind of a zero sum game. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's growing some, but but um, you know, you all these companies are fighting for the same sales um it just seems like a a tough business
1: yeah for sure it's a tough business um yeah it's i think it's more or less bit all the sports business bit more difficult for example best skateboarding they had big problems and then there was coming a guy with a lot of money was just buying it Mm -hmm. and it had a big problem again and then it was coming the next guy who was earning money from other um, companies before and was spending his money into best again and he was um, almost all team riders was bought by Best. There was almost yeah. no team riders anymore. I think two third of the team riders was riding Best. Yep. And yeah, at the moment, Best is not really on the market anymore yeah, because. Yeah, done. <laughs> yeah, more or less, yes. Yeah. Uh, so we're driven by our passion because we do what we like. And there are always some competitors which makes it difficult because maybe they don't have to earn money. And yeah. But we always was going on and we are still growing. So it looks like we was not doing a bad job so far. And yeah,
0: we like what we do. One of the questions I get from a lot of people is everybody wants to know about Kriegel and Skywalk. And I, I had Kriegel on the yeah. show and, and he just, you know, he kind of bypassed this a little bit. But when you have Kriegel flying your wing in the X Alps, you know, what is, have you been able to track that? What does that equate to in terms of sales? Is that is that a, you know does that work quite well that's always difficult
1: uh, to say if it gives more sales or less sales i mean Kriegel was asking us if he could ride our paraglider and anna our head of uh, skywalk was thinking about it because you know was already winning four times and if he's riding or flying our paraglider and if he's not winning again People could tell, oh, the Skywalk wing is not good. Because <laughs> oh, I hadn't thought oh, of
0: that. There's actually some risk there that, for so you. It's also a it? risk.
1: <laughs> but if he's winning again, yeah, for sure it's a good promotion. I think the main promotion was that Kriegel was deciding us for his wing. So it shows that for his uh, choice, that's the best choice he can do to take this wing. So I think this was the main benefit from it. And he was winning, but... I think we had four people in the top five or something with Skywalk. Yeah, you guys crushed so, it this year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we crushed it this year. Yeah, so it was that was really good because it was not only critical, a lot of people, and also the Range X Alps two, which is now also in a, a customer version on the market, uh, and was developed from uh, the product that they was using in the X Alps, and we we're selling it like hell. With delivery time of three months and more, we can't uh, fit for the demand. We already expected three times more than with the older model but it's just exploding so um yeah but we've got a good heron harness developer who also loves to make this hike and flight he's also doing some competitions so you know exactly what the people need
0: yeah i was i was really impressed with the harness that was uh, and the bag actually the, that was a, it was a really nice well thought out kit uh beautiful yeah um trickle should have flown it because it's a lot more aerodynamical and more comfortable.
1: And the other ones, but he had still agreements with other brands, so he could not take everything,
0: but a lot of other people was using it and flying good with it. So yeah, no, it was, it was, it was, it was very nice kit. I have to say, uh, you know, I'm an I'm a idiot guy, but it's, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a really nice kit. Um, crossover between fly surfer and and i'm not very familiar with fly surfer and we don't have to get into the kite into things here but the um you you mentioned some kind of interesting things before we we started about design i to tell the audience too what your role is there are you a test pilot are you a designer are you marketing what what's your role there at the two companies
1: yeah i'm one of the founders and one of the owners um we are five, uh, four owners of uh, Skywalk. And so my daily business is in the, the fly surfer department. And one main part is there in the development. But I'm also into the other brands, uh, like the uh, X2, for example. I also try to help them a bit uh, with the paragliders. Uh, last week I was um, at an sh- event at the Mosul and uh, helping the people try out the gear, for example. Uh, but I'm not uh, testing the paragliders. This is done by Alex and Stefan Gruber. Stefan Gruber was also in the X-Alps competing. Mm-hmm. And, but I was, they still all give my feedback when I fly the wings. Usually, sometimes I fly prototypes before serial production. And sometimes we kite developers make a paraglider or the paraglider developer make a, a kite. Or, for example, Benny Burley, he was a team rider for Fly Surfer. Then he showed up in our company and was working in the paragliding department. And now he is working for the fly surfer department and make very, very good wings.
0: Will you, will Skywalk get into the CCC end of things or will you stick where you are? Uh,
1: at the moment we
0: had not, um,
1: the, uh, manpower to do it. I mean, if you go in the CCC competition, you need enough manpower to be able to be at least equal to ozone or very close. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Sure. They only prove that you're behind. So it means if you step in, you need power and energy to really push it forward. So um, we will see what happens with the f- in the future. I know Alex and Stefan would really love to do it, uh, but you know we also need some income. So the daily businesses do also have wings for normal people and not only competition but it's not decided now. We will see, we always make some prototypes. For example, in the kite surfing, the whole racing scene since four or five years was switching completely to foil kites because they have a better lift to drag ratio, and now we've got in the competition the only one who have a two-liner, and all other brands, even Ozone, have only three-liners. So in the moment, we are also leading with our constructions, so it's really nice to see. Yeah. Wait a minute. You,
0: you only have a two, a, two a two liner, liner. And kite.
1: Yes, we have a two liner for the racing. We are the only one who has the two liner for. Wow. Um, I can't even imagine it.
0: I have. I can't wait to see a picture.
1: Huh. Yeah, I forwarded to you. But it's funny. We also have a one liner, which only a aero and brake rises for beginners. <laughs> it's huh. called Byron, huh. and this also works.
0: Wow. You, you mentioned that there's, you know, the, there's kind of this fascinating thing, you know, with, with kites that the technology's gotten to a point now, uh, that, you know, when it's super gusty, the kite doesn't, you know, doesn't fall out of the air, especially like they used to. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, wouldn't that be amazing with a paraglider if you could, you know, be in really rough air and it's just stays really solid. Yeah. Uh, what are exactly. you guys working on there? That sounds pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah, exactly. When I started with uh, the kites, it was uh, a bit like the paragliders. If you accelerate, uh, go for full speed. With the kites, it means if you depower, and it was always starting to collapse. So we need to develop something to make them stable. It's like with the paragliding uh, that you use the reflex wings. But uh, since the last 10 years, it was developing a lot more to make it not only stable, to also be able to handle everything. And this, all this technology, I was uh, already building some prototypes. We call it Skycarver between a kite and a paraglider. It is fully stable at, uh, or the same stable like a trim speed, even if you go full speed. And it dives like hell. If you go for full speed, um, you have five, meter seconds, uh, uh, five meters per second sink rate, for example. I think we had a 12 square meter one, and top speed was 122 sk- uh, kilometers per hour. Oh. So it's, um, yeah, it's something different. It's not a
0: normal paraglider. Right. Wow. Cool stuff coming out of out of Skywalk. That'll be interesting to see where that goes.
1: Yeah. At the moment, there's still no final plan when we bring this uh, hybrid between kite and paraglider. Um, but you will see. I still have a prototype with me. I will also go on testing with it. And, yeah, we will see.
0: You were saying that, you know, it's, it's something that would be, much more stable than what we have now, but it wouldn't be something you could certify. Can you explain that? Yeah,
1: exactly. You, you can't certify it. It's like if you would now develop a hang glider, you can't certify it as a paraglider because they tell you, yeah, but if we are, uh, what happens if it collapses? And then you say, no, it doesn't collapse. But yes, somehow it can collapse and even a hang glider can collapse. But it's, um, I mean, this uh, Skycar between a kite and a paraglider, it's a lot more easy to let it collapse than a hang glider for sure. But it's uh, still a, a lot more difficult to let it collapse compared to a paraglider, especially accelerated. So, um, and it's more important if it collapses or that it doesn't collapse about two, ten times less. And if it collapses, that it's not too far away from a normal paraglider. Mm. But for sure, if you let it collapse like a normal paraglider, you would get uh, a bad uh, certification because, uh, yeah.
0: You're going too fast.
1: It's not done by turbulence. If you would fly it in turbulence like kites, then it would be a lot safer for the same amount of turbulence. But if you just pull the risers until start to collapse, then it's uh, less good for certification. Fascinating. But it's... it's a known issue. I mean, also I think Osone also tried to push the a-, a lines further backwards. But if you make a collapse, then it's collapsing more, then you get less easy good certification. But if the A riser are further backwards, it flies a bit nicer. So it's the certification is good and bad. It's it's both.
0: Yeah, no kidding. How important is it for for you to for the company to come up with? You know, to constantly be kind of putting out the next version of the B, the next version of the C, the next version of the D. You know, does you know how how quickly is is a company kind of uh, in trouble if there's not if there's not the the latest and greatest? I mean, I imagine uh, that's quite a bit of pressure to, you know, to just be constantly innovating.
1: There's always pressure to be constantly innovating and to be uh, one of the best. Otherwise, uh, your company is failing. I mean, it's it's how it is and how it should be. Um, but we don't have too much or we don't push too much pressure. Uh, if the wing is not good enough, we don't release it. If it's good enough, then we release it. We had already, that we was waiting for one year longer, even that we don't have, uh, I think it was with the Cayenne that we was taking, no, we take another year until we release it. And it was good to do it because then you have a winner again instead of having a good product, but not good enough product. Mm. So um, take your time. And um, also with the kites, the fly surfer kites, we have usually product cyclists and kite surfing is every year new product. Mm. And we have uh, from two to three years, the product cyclists and it also helps that the customers are trusting if you're bringing something out that it's really something that it's worth to buy it and it stays longer for value. And um, the retail value is higher, and you're losing less money with the product and everything. It's not that easy in our fast, uh, uh, yeah, in our fast world that you try to push to have products that last longer and you get more value for money. Usually, it's just I want it cheap, and after a few weeks, if it's uh, destroyed, it's not a big problem for the most people. But we really love to have product that is worth the money that lasts long
0: one more question and then we'll we'll jump into the the, the flatlands techniques and strategies which i, I think is going to be uh, a great round six. out to to your the discussion with you um i had a really good talk in a, several episodes back with till uh who's been with nova for a long time and they they uh they've done some pretty fascinating very cool things with you know their junior team and their their kind of a, their, their approach to team pilots and safety. And, um, I'd like to get your thoughts on just how Skywalk decides on their, uh, on their pilots, their team pilots. So the Paul Mm -hmm. Gushel and, uh, I mean, I guess Kriegel now with the X Alps, but the, um, but how do how have you approached that? Do you guys have a junior team? How, how have you approached, um, kind of growing the sport? I'm sure that's something that's important to, uh, your company.
1: Yeah, we don't have a special program for uh, just only young pilots, but we have young pilots like Thomas Friedrich, for example. Um, so we look which are the right pilots, how to support them, and we are supporting them. Um, I'm not into it because I'm not in charge of the paragliding department. It's Anna. But for example, here where I um, fly the flatlands, uh, the good friends from me, they also um, fly Skywalk. And last year we was in the German championship uh, number play three, I think, two, three, and four, or something like this, or the top five. It was three persons already in the top five. So, um, yeah. But it's, if there's good pilots, just let us know. Um, introduce yourself. I'd recommend take a video or something so to show that you not only can fly a paraglider, that you're also able to, to um, make a video from you and to promote yourself a bit. Hmm.
0: Okay, Flatlands. Uh, you've been doing it a long time, and, uh, and I, I, I'd like to just drill into, uh, you know, what you've learned over the years. What you can advice, you can pass along for uh, how to how to learn how to fly the flatlands, and if you already fly them, how to fly them better. Uh, Is that maybe that's too general? But why don't why don't just open it with that and uh, and you know let's let's get into it. Yeah, usually I make some uh, speeches for people. They can book me, and then I can
1: speak about two to four hours about flatland flying with some videos uh, showing um, the different scenes, and then they can look okay. What how I should decide? Where can I see where the thermal is coming? So it's um, not that easy and it takes a bit of time to get used to it there's a lot of tips and tricks you can give to the people in general it's a bit different different than uh, at the alps for example at the alps if there's no wind you've got the sun the sun is getting into the mountains and if the um, um, the mountain is uh, 90 degrees to the sun then it's eating up the energy getting hot and then the air is going up and the top of the mountain it's lifting off and you see the clouds, and usually the clouds are directly above the hills, so it's quite easy. In the flats, it's more difficult. You need to read more and um, to listen to um, slightly differences, uh, whatever happens. So it's more that you have to realize what is going on.
0: Yeah, and, you know, the... Are, are you, are you frequently flying, you know, are you trying to find the days that have quite a bit of wind, you know, to, so you can get farther? Are, are you, are you, are your flatlands often quite wind affected?
1: Yeah, it's, it's also a question what you want. If you just look for XC points that you would do in the competition, then you need almost no wind or the best is turning wind during the day that you can make a closed mm-hmm. triangle. But usually in the flatlands, it's more difficult than in the Alps because usually if there's a little bit of wind, the thermal is moving with the wind. In the Alps, the mountains don't move, even if there's wind. <laughs> so it's more stationary, so it's easier to get against the wind. Usually you do in the flatlands one way, and then you need strong enough wind to get really far. Usually if you have 20 kilometers per hour or a bit more, then it gets can get really far. As long, I mean, if you have 20 kilometers per hour wind, and you just only stay up in the air for 10 hours, you fly 200 kilometers, even if you don't go into one direction just flying around, because the wind is blowing you this 200 kilometers already. And with 20 kilometers of wind, and you're able to stay up in the air for 10 hours, you can fly 300 kilometers.
0: So we we don't have the advantage of, of uh, being able to to see you, as this is an audio podcast, but when you give these talks, and we'll have a, a link for that too, how people can can book view because I imagine that would be fantastic and, and terrific learning um but what are take me through you know your kind of syllabus there and, and and talk about each each topic a little bit you know so what are some of these tips and strategies
1: yeah well, first of all I also have a, a video channel I give you the link on for the people Great. and there's some um, I call it in German a clear video that means um, <laughs> I'm <laughs> A bear. Uh, I'm okay. I'm just explaining how I do it and you, you see the video when I'm flying, and then I'm explaining what I see and why I decide what to do. Mm. And this is how I try to explain the people how to fly in the flatlands. I have plenty of videos done already. So it's I think it's a few hours where you can watch for, for the videos. And I also have a page, it's called my name, Armin Harwish. Uh, dot de, where you also find all my tips and tricks and links about paragli- uh, paragliding flying in the flatlands. Great, it's a, a link book. So it's even if you just listen to it, then you can watch for it for the videos. There's for example also videos from sailplane pilots who is also explaining how to fly with a, fly with a sailplane in the flatlands. Far for example about the uh, how to get the no terms if you want to get around the airspaces where to find the airspace, informations, um, all or about the technique, what I use. I've got a mobile phone, for example. All about this, all these tips are there included. If you have special questions, then we can get into the points. For example, how to find the first thermal, or when you take off, how to catch the first thermal, or how to find about the weather. All these links are already included, but we can speak about points in detail, whatever you like to.
0: Yeah, let's let let's let's take it right from the beginning. So, um, how about from the weather side? How bef- before you're at the even at the tow paddock, uh, you know, how are you identifying? What are the steps you're going through to identify? Like, hey, this is a good day. This is this is one we we want to be getting out for. Yeah, um, usually I've got in Germany. It's
1: topmeteo.eu that's a forecast it also exists for namibia for example the best one you can get but i don't think it's for america and this one you have got forecast for the potential flight distance for the day and you should watch for this and then you see already if it forecasts that it's possible to make cross-country for a lot of kilometers after i check this and i check how the clouds are looking because this forecast is not too accurate I was explaining them what they could change already, but they was not doing it. So I have to check if the clouds are looking more like it's raining, for example. Then you can't do the cross country too good, or if it's bit maybe thunderstorms, then it's also a bit more difficult. But if it's normal, let's say two to third eight um, clouds, then it will be a great day. And then also check about the wind. Usually, if you want to do one way, it should have minimum 15 kilometers per hour, better 20 or um, maybe a bit more depends on the takeoff area, then you can fly very far or it's almost no wind, then you can um, make a FIE triangle or something like this. That's usually how I check and It's very fast for me. And if this looks good, then I look into any details.
0: So one of the things that that I, I constantly fall into a trap of is I'll I'll look at the medio and, and, you know, identify, okay, this is a day that I really want to take advantage of. And then I go to Tom Payne's, uh, XC planner and, uh, yep. and I start trying to imagine what I'm going to try to do with the day. And I, and I, and I set up a, you know, an FAI or a downwind and, you know, knowing that, you know, in my mind, like, listen, I'll, I'll fly the day. This is just, this is just an idea but I often get locked into that idea and blow it because I, you know, I really want to get the FII or I really want to get this far and I, and I feel like I'm not on the pace and so I'll speed up and I blow it. Um, How, how, what are you, are you, what kind of idea are you, are you trying to go with and how are you remaining flexible?
1: Especially with the flatlands, you have to be very flexible. I usually always make plans, but the plans are more for me to, to already pre-think about the options. So when I plan something, I always plan with different options. Then I learn already, okay, if I go, if the wind is a bit more south and I can go around this airspace different, or if I fly this uh, um, area, uh, sometimes I look at uh, cross-country flights already. Um, If a lot of people was um, landing there, and it's maybe very difficult at this area or if it was easy or the people was flying over it and it looks like a bit easier area. So I really, um learn a bit while I'm planning. But the planning is more for to learn about uh, if it's different than how to do it different. But usually you always have to catch the thermal
0: where the thermal is and not where you expect or you want to have it. How do you or what do you teach uh, when about, you know, either for yourself or what do you teach for when, when you do blow it? Uh, In the beginning,
1: shortly before learning, I said, shit, now it's over. And I tried to educate my skills that I know as early as possible that it get difficult. Now, usually I know before I get close to the um, cloud base, that it will be difficult after the cloud base. Because before you're close to the cloud base, then you can watch in the future or where you want to go. And if it looks difficult there, that's not enough clouds, for example, or the area looks difficult because it's maybe um, it's too wet at the next area or the next area. If it's a bit lower than the area where you're at the moment, then usually the thermal is not that good. I realize it already before I get low and try to stay as high as possible and take all the time I want to have. Mm. And you need to to teach yourself to learn as early as possible that it becomes difficult. Because when you're low, you have not too much options anymore. And when you're high, you have plenty more options. You can still even park below the cloud uh, to have a better chance to not land. The main goal for flatland flying is to stay the whole day in the air. It sounds easy, it is maybe not that easy. Usually if the people are staying the whole day in the air, they are flying very far. And for the, even for not the people who want to fly the most longest flight, but it's still the most fun to use the whole day, you know. So try to stay in the air and don't speed too much.
0: Tell me about crosswind flying and, you know, one of the things that I've been really trying to work on is we, we had a task down at the Menarca in Valle in January, the, the, the real long task it was the last day, uh, and, the, the, not the final leg, but the the long leg to what would be the the kind of the end waypoint, and then back to goal was a long upwind leg, and uh, very few people pulled it off because it was quite windy. But the 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 move there was to constantly. B- try to move up to wind whenever, you know, if some, if a cloud would pop to your, to windward, you really had to ex- expel the, you know, to use the energy and to go really slow because you're punching into wind. Because otherwise, if you're constantly going downwind, you were never going to make the waypoint, you know, so you had to really think ahead and kind of do this huge bell, constantly kind of fighting into wind. And then sometimes you would have to fall off because if you tried to go to wind to get a thermal, you'd bomb out, you know, the so you, so it was kind of this anticipation of having to go downwind at some point so constantly fight upwind when you could when you thought you could get there um when you're when you're not flying downwind in the flats tell me a little bit about the strategy there the main thing is you first
1: always for flat flying you have to understand how the thermal is structured usually you know cloud streets and the cloud streets are following uh, more or less the wind direction And for example, even if you have uh, no uh, clouds, you still have cloud streets without clouds. They still have the same uh, physics. So usually it's better if you're flying, if you have got thermals more or less straight into the wind, then usually on the road where you got always the lift. That's one of the tricks. Mm. And then if you're still doing crosswind, then maybe you have to go 90 degrees to the wind to the next cloud street and going straight into the wind. I would not go straight. Usually not go straightly into the to the point turn point. Usually if you've got a thermal. Expect maybe it's a cloud street and try to get the next part of the cloud street and then going 90 degrees instead of going uh, straight. When happens cloud streets, a bit more difficult. Uh, usually cloud street if the wind is always the uh, the same speed and direction with all the same height or with the different heights, then you have no cloud streets. But if the wind is getting stronger in the higher upper areas, then the updraft gets a bit pushed for, further away and it's getting down, the downdraft, and generating, this is pushing the next lift. And if you realize a bit more how the, the thermal is, the downdraft is triggering the next thermal, then you know a bit more about the cloud stream, then you have a better chance to catch the next thermal.
0: Tell me about – I was down in Brazil uh, chasing really big distance this this fall and – um, what I what I started playing around with there was being way more aggressive than we're typically taught. Or you know the the kind of the yep. rule of thumb is oh you're in sync, you know turn 45 degrees and and use a lot of speed. That's that's what I learned when I you know started flying, yep. and I found that that just was not nearly enough. You know that you the the the, the lift was very strong and the sing was the sink was incredibly strong, and if you yep. spent any time in the sink, you you were on the deck. Uh, it just you, you right. just you really had to be aggressive, and so it was quite hard to mentally do this. But it was you know because you were going so far off course line. But I, I was often turning ninety degrees. It, it, what what is yeah. your what is your thought? What are your thoughts on sink? First of
1: all, it's the same like with the cloud streets. Um, like also you have the updraft cloud streets. Um, orientated with the wind and also the downdraft is orientated with the wind. So if you're flying downwind and you're inside of this downdraft street, it makes sense to go 90 degrees right or left to get into the updraft again if it's a kind of cloud street uh, day. that's You have to find the right way how to get as fast as possible out of it. When I was starting paragliding the flatlands and the paragliders was very bad, usually I was getting into the sink, I was turning around Getting back into the uh, climbing area to not get into this sinking area, but this is not makes you very fast in flying, but it's <laughs> a good chance to stay up in the air.
0: <laughs> I'm not. I'm in sync. I'm gonna move. <laughs> I'm gonna go back to the list. Yes, yeah, so
1: just turn around, and go back where he was coming from. <laughs> I mean, for less experienced pilot, it, it's still an option. But for sure, if you want to do 300, 400, 500 kilometers, this is no option. Then you have to push accelerator and look where you can find the next lift and you need
0: a bit of luck also um to make a really record breaking flight that that leads perfectly into my next question there are days you know when i flew the record here uh in in the states i don't know 5 years ago now um uh you know it was like it was one of those days where it was just I was constantly in sync. I'd leave the cloud, and I'd turn and go downwind, and another cloud would appear right in front of me. You know, it was just magic. That was, you know, that I was just constantly in sync with the with the thermals. And I mean, there were some exceptions to that. Obviously, it was a long day, but I I really had trouble with that and in Brazil. You know, there, it almost did the same thing. Every day you would, if you got established, which was really tricky, you know, 90% of the pilots would be on the deck in the first 15, 20 K uh, every day, you know, so it was really hard to get established. And maybe we could go back to your, you mentioned that that was, you know, finding the first thermal is, is the key in the flatlands. And so you can kind of get established and get into the middle of the day where, when it gets good. But so we'll, we'll come back to that, but, you know, in Brazil, that would be, you know, these beautiful cloud streets right up right off the bat, uh, often until, you know, kind of 10. 11, you know, when you imagine the best part of the day is just starting and then you have these massive blue holes, huge. And, and, uh, and if you didn't anticipate, because there's a lot of wind, you know, you can't just park it under a cloud and wait and wait and wait for the blue hole to fill in, you know, you're, you're moving. So you, you could slow down, but if you didn't anticipate that early enough, if you didn't slow down, you know, 20 minutes before that happened, which often you weren't you couldn't see, you couldn't see the blue hole coming yet, you know, um, you'd, you'd be on the deck. It was really tricky. Um, and so I, I don't know if there's a, if there's even an answer to that, but the, you know, it, when you looked at the end of the day, you know, the, it was, it was very often some of the same pilots were, were, were making it through. You know, it wasn't just random. It wasn't just a random yep. 10 pilots would make it. It was, <laughs> oh, there's that guy again. He made it, you know. Flying cross-country is not random, yes. <laughs> exactly. It's not. You need a bit of luck. That's also right.
1: You can't calculate everything. But usually, I, I never flew in Brazil, for um, so I can't tell exactly, but… Uh, What I try to do is um, I try to know where are areas which is not good for thermals. Um, If you know where the areas, usually where it's difficult, then you already slow down a bit before I try to get a bit right or a bit left to go a bit around. As early you notice this, as early you can go a bit to the right or left, as easy it is to get around it. And, yeah, you always try to realize, you need to realize as early as possible that it becomes difficult. Because then you can slow down a bit, climb a bit higher, and get a bit slower. And then usually in the blue area, it can pop up uh, a cloud when you get in there. But if you're too fast there, maybe you can't catch the next cloud. So. Try to realize as early as possible that it becomes difficult. Planning what I do, I also know quite well the areas where it's difficult uh, with the service
0: uh, Okay, so how do you identify that? Is that experience you've been through there before or is that something you're identifying in the models?
1: Um, usually I, I like to fly new areas, so it's not my experience from exactly this spot but um, usually I, for example, go for the um, contest, uh, XJ contest um, flights and I check for this takeoff, for example, all the different flights, for example, the first flight. And then I look for them and try to think what have they been doing and why are they doing this. And sometimes I was just watching for the flights and then I was guessing at which date it was done. Was it in the spring, was it in the fall? And after some time of training, I noticed quite well, okay, this was in the fall, and this was in the spring. For example, in the fall or in the summertime, then the uh, fields are dark, and there's no water inside anymore. So the lower areas with the fields was working good. But in uh, the springtime, they are still green, so it's more difficult over the green uh, fields.
0: Hmm. Do you, one of the things, this wasn't a question I was planning on asking, but the, one of the things we've been discussing at home here a lot. So I, I live in the desert and I live in big mountains, but we have very close to us is, is kind of like a, like a high plateau, you know, so, so flatlands, but very high, you know, 4,000, 5,000 feet. Um, And, and then then we have the mountains but the you know right now this time of year or even you know in in may we have the same sun that we have in in july and we have in terms of hours you know so, and it's very direct sun it's very overhead in the northern hemisphere we're having a, a debate about why you know we we the days do come around and we can go quite big but uh very rarely do we get to go as big as we do, you know, a, a month after the solstice. So the same sun we have now, but a month later. Uh, what are the atmospheric conditions? Is that, do you do you also have that in Germany? Is it, is it, is it similar? Yeah. Um, is this is this ground? Is it moisture? Is it ground temperature? Is it taking longer to heat up? Uh, you know, why? The, the,
1: yeah, usually the main, main important point is that we get the fresh air. The fresh air um, you need, if you have um, a package of air with zero degrees or a package of air with 20 degrees, you need a significant less energy to heat a cold air up to get a lift from it than a hot air. So if you have cold air, it um, the energy from the sun generates a lot more uh, thermals. And if the cold air is coming, then usually it's less stable. And if you get uh, inversion from a high-pressure system, then you get a lot better thermal. And especially in the summertime here in Germany or in the fall time, even if the sun is a long time there, it's getting quite hot, but uh, the thermal is not getting too good anymore.
0: Mm. Gotcha. Two things. The yeah. And I'll, I'll separate them. The, uh, finding that first thermal talk about getting established. So you've identified, you know, you've looked at the weather the night before you you're going to fly this day. You've got your launch pinned out for where you want to start. Uh, you've, 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 you've planned all your, uh, you, you've done your route on XC planner. You've planned your airspace issues. Um, talk about getting established because there's nothing more frustrating than coming off toe and going 10 K.
1: No, for me, it's not frustrating. Ah. As long as I land safely and have a nice day, it was a great day. Ah, and uh, good point. I'm happy and I've, I drive back and I go for my work and it was fine. Um, I tried it. The weather was usually most of the time. The weather is different than it was forecasted. You no, know, it's a common thing. You always get frustrated because it was a good day forecasted and it's getting shit. Um, hmm. No, I don't get frustrated from this. Yeah. <laughs> um, I only get maybe frustrated if everybody's going up and I'm too stupid to catch any thermal But <laughs> if you get frustrated, it usually also doesn't help. <laughs> uh, usually, I recommend try to be one hour before the sermon is properly starting on the takeoff area. Hmm. First, the time you have time to speak with your friends, and you can pre- prepare yourself a bit better. You already get a feeling for the day. You can watch for it how the first clouds coming up or um, how the air is rising up the hill and everything. And usually I take off very early because you want to fly fast, the most important point you have to fly long. And you only can fly long if you start early. And so I try to start as early as possible. And usually it's quite common that for 50% I have the first landing down of the hill for sure. And I'm not frustrated at all because the other guys are still up, but I was trying the first time already at the first chance. Mm. And when i get up the second time usually i'm still taking off earlier before the other ones are still taking off and it's a lot of time that i'm just flying alone because the other don't take off if you want to fly you have to take off <laughs> and if you if you land the first time already then you get a bit of impression for the day already and you notice a bit already how it feels how the is, how the turbulence is and you get better experience for the next takeoff already the other don't have and um yeah, if I'm there, I love to fly, and yeah, it's normal. You always land after you fly. If you don't land, if you crash, then have a problem.
0: <laughs> what What do you credit your your continued passion for flying for? You know, the, I I can hear it in your voice. You know, the, these this that's just solid advice. Don't get frustrated. That doesn't help anything, does it? And but also just uh, you, know, you started flying in 1989, and you, you clearly still love it. What, what What do you credit that to? Do you go through kind of dips and valleys? <laughs> I was, I had years where I was not
1: flying too much. maybe three, four flights a year, mainly my holiday. It was about 10 or 15 years because I had to, to build up my company. And then we was developing this uh, e-walk, uh, the electric engine uh, for paragliding. and my partners asked me if I can do some demos and I love to do it. And then we grow on the project for several years. But then I was going on without the electric engine for paragliding. And after one or two years, I was very good again. And I was just thinking that I had an engine in my bag. And it helped me that it was trying, okay, I think it works out there. And you should say, okay, otherwise I have an engine. But then you just still do it. And I get one tip from a very good sailplane pilot. Don't try to search uh, a lift. Just try to find the area where you get the most lifting air. Hmm. And that makes it a bit easier to find the right line.
0: Hmm. That makes sense,
1: yeah, I like it. Because that's the best point where you can be, you stay maybe just longer in the air and then the thermals coming, or there should be the best thermals also. But if you only try where's the next thermal, then it's a bit more difficult, but then you just think, okay, where it's, the air should rise up the most.
0: And and how are how are you identifying that you know it, it, maybe your flatlands are are different than ours but when it's you know like a, have you flown have you flown Australia have you flown Daniloquin the flatlands there no okay uh, yes I was
1: flying in Australia um, plenty of years ago at the World Cups oh, okay over in Manila I was also sometimes I was trying out uh, a heat cam in the in Namibia for example also mm. and was looking if this is working that you see the hotter spaces on ground mm. and to be honestly I tried it in Namibia and it didn't work too bad but i was trying it in Germany and it didn't work at all right <laughs> you see the green forest it's cold yeah <laughs> yeah and I still say no i'm sure there will be the summit and there's a cloud over it and you go over it and you get the summit even at that it's the most cold area where you find around. There's a good German book that explains also that um, you're not only getting lift, lifting air from hot air on the ground, it's also about the difference between the rising up air, how um, the humidity is compared to the surrounding air. And if the air is uh, has more humidity, if it's more wet, and then it's lighter. And this, if you had a good day where it's rounding is uh, n- not too much water inside in the air, and uh, then you get about one, it, it feels like one degree or two degrees hotter air just because the air is lighter by more humidity. I don't know if you know this book. I can also give you the link, but it's also at my page, arminharich.de. It's a German book. I don't know if it's also available in English, but it explains that. It's very simple,
0: yeah. Yeah. That, um, so. So to kind of summarize that, you know, like the the often the places that we think aren't going to work work really well. You know, like the green places, the cold places, the, you know, the, those yeah. because of the humidity, because that lighter that air is less dense, it it moves, yeah. it moves.
1: But this especially works, uh, for example, um, if um, it shades down a bit, that you have less sun, and then there's no. Um, then it helps for the um, um, where there's more water because this area is not uh, cooling out so easy and when it rise up high enough then it's a benefit that there's uh, more humidity inside instead of the surrounding area so um, but there also exist people who just flying by uh, feeling and they're doing so great and some people just fly about thinking but usually more people who just uh, have the feeling are flying usually better. I try to, to combine everything a bit together, my feeling, and that I try to, as I've studied physics, to understand a bit why it happens and why it's not happening.
0: Fascinating. It was. I think. I think one of the mysteries for people who don't fly a lot of flats is is the lack of triggers. You know that they they, they see this kind of uh, featureless uh, expanse and and think, oh, man, how do I know where things are going to ping off? And it's there. There are there are always triggers. In Germany, there are a lot of triggers
1: in the flatlands. Yeah,
0: and I think, but I, I mean, I think even that's why I was asking about Australia because it's it, it there really is not much. <laughs> you know, this is just yeah. desert, uh, and it goes forever. But there are still triggers. You just you just have yeah. to adapt your eyes. It's just a different way of looking yeah. at the at the earth.
1: It's a lot more silent, I would say. They're not screaming to you. Mm. Here is the thermal. Exactly. You have to look, look more carefully. But if everything almost the same, if something a little bit different. And usually this is the trigger, whatever it is, more
0: or less. Mm. Th- this would be easier if we had a chalkboard, but I'll, I'll ask you to explain it. And, th- yep. and then this will be my, my second to last question. Um, exiting a cloud, uh, you know, uh, l- l- let's call it a 15, 20 K downwind day. Uh, you've got real beautiful cloud streets. It's, it's not a blue day. Uh, you're kind of dolphin flying. Um, you know, there's... Where should you exit a cloud and you know directly downwind, you know, quarter off it, downwind off it the, talk about kind of strategy for cloud flying.
1: Um, it's more or less again about how thermals is uh, getting structured. Um, if there's no wind, there's also the theory that you should turn 60 degrees right or left. If you're cooking uh, rice for example, then there is a structure, um, octaeda, I think it's called in English, like octaeda structure. That means if you have going from one sermon to the next sermon, then the next sermon should be 60 degrees right or left. If you have wind, then it's usually like, like streets, then you go usually following straight with the wind. But if you're ending the uh, street, it can happen that there is still some lift at the end. And afterwards, you have no lift anymore, then you should turn right or left. I would recommend usually, but it also depends, uh, on the ground, which ground looks better for the next thermal, and where you have to point for the future or where the clouds look a bit better.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Last question. Uh, you started flying in 1989, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, without doing the math, that's a lot of years and, uh, and if you look back at at your time, uh, first give us where you were when you were kind of a 50 hour pilot, what year and and where were you? And if you could go back to that time and change anything, you haven't had an accident. So hopefully this is just a simple no, but, um, what, what would you change? I would have bought Tesla. Uh, stuff <laughs> That didn't exist <laughs> back then.
1: <laughs> I pre-ordered that. <them. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> or, or Apple stocks then. <laughs> yeah, right. Apple. <laughs> Apple. <laughs> for flying, I was I had a great time. I didn't do anything. Yeah, um, yeah. I know I was giving a, a, um, a help for hang glider pilots. I had a small uh, spot here uh, around my area, and he was dying five minutes later. Uh, If I would have known this before, I could have helped him to not take off. (laughs) Mm. But um, also one friend of mine, he's sitting in a wheelchair. Uh, He had a collapse and was not reacting. And yeah, if I would have noticed this, I would have not asked him, why don't you fly? Yeah. Mm. I mean, maybe the points. Yeah
0: more more regret for uh for f- things you've seen
1: yeah but i don't know i should have changed um <laughs> or whatever
0: yeah it was a great time <laughs> yeah yeah can always change stuff when we have 2020 hindsight couldn't we um well great armin thank you so much i, I really appreciate it is there uh we're, we're gonna put the links up to your site and those Fantastic! Yep. I think YouTube the, videos. the links with the
1: videos, it's easier to understand. We just speak, uh, the podcast is a bit difficult, but if you see a video where you see the cloud treat, and then I speak about what I do next and everything, then it's a bit more easy. But just the main problem is that most of my videos are in uh, in German. I just made a video about our new Mescal and also include some tips about active flying, for example, and this one is in English. Maybe I do more in English future but i'm not a native english
0: speaker i'm happy that i hopefully understand your questions right <laughs> oh you no, you did great um perfect well we'll have those and we we do actually have a lot of uh, german listeners so that they'll appreciate that and but I'll, I'll put up all those links and uh we'll be in touch I, I look forward to sharing the sky with you here at some point and armin thank you i appreciate your time yes thank you pleasure
1: and greetings to everybody
0: I hope you enjoyed that Uh, great talk with, uh, Guy who's been at it an awfully long time. A lot of good takeaways there. Hope you enjoyed it. If you're getting something out of the cloud-based mayhem, this is a listener-supported podcast. We don't do any of this with sponsorship. Hope you enjoy that so you don't have to get those long messages that sometimes come in the front of podcasts. So uh, here's my message now. I treat it like a magazine subscription or a video subscription or something you find valuable. Always, All we've ever asked for is a buck a show. So uh, you can do that as a one-time donation through PayPal. You can find the links for that on, on the, the website cloudbasedmayhem.com, or you can kind of set it and forget it through Patreon, which is a really cool way to be rewarded for doing so. Or you can uh, buy some of our swag. We've got a store up now on the website and go there to see our uh, fully recycled hats, Cloud Based Mayhem Trucker hats. Each one of those is totally unique, made by a fellow pilot, Annika herdinand it recaps. They're super cool, I really dig them. Everybody loves those hats. And then also our new t-shirts uh, made by Patagonia with our Cloud Based Mayhem logo and a cool little motto on the back uh, that I think you will really enjoy. They fit really well, they're super nice. They last, they're Patagonia, of course, so they last forever. They're all organic, fair trade, all that good stuff, which uh, is pretty sexy. So check those things out, cloudbasedmayhem.com and uh, support the show if you can. If you can't, totally understand. We'll keep bringing it to you. And uh, this has been a lot of fun. Heading down to Woodrat for the comp. Uh, they're run this year by new organizer, Dan Wells, uh, part of the, the club there. So that should be a lot of fun. And we've got some great shows coming up for you in, in the near future here on comp strategies and tactics and all kinds of good stuff. So stick around. Thanks for listening. See you on the next one. Cheers.